and welcome to the seventh episode of the third season of the Web Perspectives Podcast. Ryan Hineka of SASHQ logs on to talk about the digital nomad lifestyle, working remotely, and running a remote-first business. If you are or have ever dreamed of being a digital nomad, then this episode is for you. Over the next two hours, Ryan and Sean both dish out the hottest travel tips while discussing the gritty details of getting paid while working overseas. Ryan and Sean provide more than one spectacular idea for making friends and getting connected, and they dish on some of the best work abroad situations and locations around the world. I haven't traveled a lot, so trust me when I say that this was a real eye-opener. Apparently, I've been missing out. I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you will too. Welcome to Web Perspectives. Welcome to Web Perspectives, the go-to podcast for instant web development tips, tricks, career advice, and ways to supercharge your web development career. Put the soft skills back into software and supercharge your web development career. Hey, Ryan. Ryan, nice to meet you. I'm really excited to have you on the show. This was you, Mike. You know Ryan, so I will let you introduce him. Yeah. Ryan and Neka and I, we go way back. Yeah. He and I have uh, had a parallel track in our career over about a four-year span where I was running my own web development business, and he was doing an an app and web development business. And uh, we shared a lot of tips and pointers, and he was really helpful in helping me grow my own business. And one of the things that made his business quite different from mine is that he was working with people who were all pretty much remote and across, I think, seven different time zones and he was constantly traveling and on the road and now that a lot of us are working from home at least partially in some kind of hybrid or more remote kind of situations than what was pre-covid i thought it'd be a really good idea to have a conversation about what it means to be working remotely and what it means to be a digital nomad while trying to manage a large team or even just your own personal work and efforts. And Sean, I know you've done a lot of traveling and you've got some experience at this. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm over here. I've lived in the same city for 50 years and I'm not sure if I have any concept at all of what it could possibly be like to not only work remotely and from home like I do now, but also, you know, what is like, what is a travel day? <laughs> is that like, I have some pretty simple questions, I think. But yeah, Brian Hineka was the first person I thought of that we could possibly bring on and have this conversation with us. Because not only does he know tech, not only does he know digital nomad lifestyle tips and tricks, he's also got some pretty great stories around it as well. So Ryan Hineka of uh, SAS HQ, welcome to Web Perspectives. Thanks, Mike. And thanks, Sean. I really appreciate you guys having me on here. I was, I was quite honored to be asked, Mike. Like you say, we've known each other a couple lifetimes, it feels like. And even when I'd be disappearing to Indonesia for 18 months or wherever it was, I'd come back and we'd sit down for a beer at Cold Garden like, you know, we just saw each other <laughs> last week. And, yep. uh, and I truly appreciate the relationship that you and I have and what we share between each other to really help each other out. Because that's what it's all been about, is always helping each other whether it's 
through our tech jobs or with remote workers, giving them opportunities that they may not have in some situations and, and so on. We want to help our clients. We want to help the team members we have on our team and, and so on. So again, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. Thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us today. Well, the travel was easy. <laughs> you say, you know, Mike talking about the travel. I'm like, you, you want me on the podcast? I'm like, perfect. You know, like it's, I don't have to travel for 24 hours on three different flights to, you know, who knows where and everything like that. It's just like, perfect. Just here's the link, log on, let's chat for a couple hours. Love it. It's perfect activity for a layover at home. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, why don't you start by telling our listeners, have you stopped counting countries, all the countries you've traveled, and how many have you traveled at this point in time? Oh, well, good question. I have stopped counting, but I also don't think the number is that high. Oh. I meet some digital nomads that they're like, this is my 48th country that I've been working from. And, you know, and then digital nomads say different things. Uh, remote workers say different things. I have not been to Australia. I say I have not been to Australia. I've been in Australia. I've landed in Sydney. I've had a 14-hour layover and basically stayed in the airport and then, you know, flew up to Kuala Lumpur from there. And But I don't, I, you know, I was in the airport where other nomads will be like, well, every country you transfer through, as long as you're there more than a couple hours, you were there. You know, you had some food. You had a beer or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, there's a little bit of controversy over where you have actually been. Um, I'd say the biggest ones that stick out for me. No, it doesn't count though. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. You're on my side there. So No, like the only one that counts is Singapore. That airport is really cool. And you've kind of seen Singapore a little bit yes. at least when you land in that airport. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so wait, let me get this straight. Is there like a little bit of a competition between digital nomads as to this number? About <laughs> Is it... It sounds yeah. kind of friendly. It, it is. I, I, well, oh, absolutely. I think I think it is kind of a friendly thing, but it's like a conversation that you have with everybody. I relate to this because I did this for a long time. I traveled and I worked. But every time you end up with a conversation with somebody, they ask, well, okay, well, how many countries have you traveled? And I mostly ask that to establish some authority for you because I'm sure our listeners are wondering, well, like, how much have you actually traveled? And how do you quantify that, right? Yeah. And so a lot of people ask the question, okay, how many countries have you traveled? And I never traveled to Bali myself but I've heard that in those communities, like in Chiang Mai and Thailand, a lot of those nomad-focused digital nomad areas, they ask that question a lot. But maybe you can fill us in yep. if you believe that's also the case. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. You know, just like you say, that number is something that can help provide that authority on, you know, are they a digital nomad or are yeah. they just kind of traveling around a little bit and working? When it starts getting to European regions, like I spent about six months working from Bansko, Bulgaria, beautiful little co-working space there that a couple guys I met working on a project in Tunisia, North Africa. Some girl I met over there who's from Germany, she actually lived half-time Bali, half-time Hong Kong. And four months after our project wrapped up in Tunisia, she invited 13 of us down to Bali for a couple months. And that was my first introduction to Bali. But jumping back to Bulgaria, you know, I spent months in Bulgaria, but there was times like, hey, we went for two weeks on the road. We still did our work every day for four to six hours, checking emails and doing things, but traveling through six different countries, went to Macedonia, over to Greece, and you spent a couple days there and then you work and then you go back to Bulgaria. Now, is that a country number on my list now? Like, you know, some you spent two days in, some you spent like Bali. Over the course of five years, I spent almost two and a half of those years in Indonesia. 
So sometimes for six month stints, I think my longest stint was almost 11 months before the pandemic came and came back to Canada. And that's kind of where I wrapped up my digital nomadism journey, which, you know, I still travel, still have some fun. But the way the pandemic came in for me is I had just put everything in storage a year and a half before that moved over to Bali, was working on setting up an expat-owned business called Island Apps over there. It was a lot of work because you can't set up an expat-owned business in Indonesia. When you want it in Indonesia, you have to constantly fly to embassies outside of Indonesia. So I'm off to Kuala Lumpur, off to Singapore, which, jumping back to that airport, Mike, you ever get the chance, if you are transferring through Singapore and you have a chance of a two-hour layover or a 23-hour layover, take the 23-hour layover. It's a whole world in there. Yeah, hang on. I'm going to go right now. I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. Sounds awesome. Well, they have like a movie theater, a zoo, all these lounging chairs. It's basically like yeah. a business lounge, but the entire airport feels like that. Fantastic. That yeah. sounds gorgeous. Yeah. Terminal to terminal. You can just sit and watch movies, fall asleep in the theater for a few hours, go get it, sit in a massage chair, wander through the butterfly garden. Like it's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah, just stunning. So, but yeah, so um, I digress. Setting up the expat owned business, there was about 13 to 15 steps, depending. And I made it through to the last step. I was in Kuala Lumpur at the embassy, got my paperwork, flew back to Bali. It was like February 19th or something like that of 2020, or in uh, the embassy in Kuala Lumpur. Go back to Bali, go into immigration. All right, got this paper. Like, sorry, like we're not signing anything right now. We're there's something going on. We're just like, just come back in a couple of weeks or so. Oh no! And so it was like, yeah, a year, probably almost a hundred thousand dollars invested into doing different things, getting things ready, and they just said, nope, we're not approving anything right now. And then, oh, the world's shutting down. Like, oh, leave leave our country, which I get. I wasn't on a proper visa to stay, so I left. And then, unfortunately. Three days after I left, Indonesia then announced, hey, if anyone's here on visas that will expire, it's okay. You can stay as long as you want right now. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I just left plus 33 degrees, landed in minus 33 degrees, and then you told me I could have stayed. You know, like, darn. But, hey, you know what? As much as that sucked for me, it's very little to, you know, what the pandemic's done to many people and businesses and families and so on. So I may complain about it, but it's really not a big problem. So settled in here and tying back into digital nomadism. When I got back here, because I'd moved my life over there, everything was over there. I couldn't access bank accounts all of a sudden. I couldn't do I didn't have somewhere to live here. And then I'm like trying to find a place to live. And I'm like, yeah, I've just got back from overseas. Can I come look at the apartment building? And everyone's just like, no, no, you must have the you bug. Like you can't come anywhere near our building. So I was lucky enough to have a friend say, you know, I got a room in a basement, post up here, do your uh, quarantine, and then we can figure it out from there. So finally found a place, but it was through a video call, which is great now that that technology is being used but I had to browse an apartment to live in and I'm all about energy and like I'm, I'm a little bit spiritual from different things I got involved in in Bali and you know I'm just like I have to pick if I want to live here based on a video sign all the lease papers and I'm not going to actually go into the place until the day I get the keys so it was a different world and I was just like I need to create a home here create a solid home base and travel for fun travel for work a little bit but for almost five and a half years, my life was what I call a workation. 
you know, I was working all the time, but I was also vacationing all the time. I was in beautiful places, posting pictures on Facebook and Instagram and making guys like Mike go, like, I'm leaving these platforms <laughs> because I don't want to see another p- picture of Ryan on the beach or Ryan golfing. I, I just couldn't take it anymore. No, yeah, you drove me <laughs> off the Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> all your happiness, grr. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I was in um, Portugal in it's small uh, the archipelago. I don't know how to say it. The, those little islands on the west of Portugal, and uh, I was in this island called Terceira. And I sent Mike. This was way back. I think even before we had our podcast, I sent you this picture of my feet by all these rocks leading to like this ocean. And you, you sent me a message back saying, "Oh, this reminds me of a friend that I have." And I think now, I think I know that friend. <laughs> you might have. Been. Hey, yeah, yeah. Now you know that yeah, friend. Yeah, yeah. Ryan, Sean, Sean Ryan. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, so, you guys are, nice. have both traveled quite a bit, and uh, and you're always very kind to keep me in the loop on your adventures. And I do actually appreciate it. I can kid and jest a little bit right now about it, but I do appreciate it. Yeah, it's always nice. So workation. That sounds very yeah. fun and grand but like maybe just tell our audience is it actually as fun and exciting as it sounds oh what's the reality of the workation the reality of the workation yeah there's two sides to it are you a solo entrepreneur yeah and uh you know a lot of the digital nomads are purely that they're solo entrepreneurs are doing their own things for their clients i think for that boat on the digital nomad side of things it's extremely challenging if you are not a very organized person and you're okay saying no to participating in some things i'm very lucky i've got a great team i have got a team of ios and android developers that have been working with me now for almost 10 years so a lot of the things that we do or we sell and stuff like that my team is involved in 90 percent of it before i even do the final touches sign the contracts and then make sure everything's being managed properly along the way So for me, it was a great experience because I could go two or three days and just decide to go diving or surfing or going through the jungle on a hike or something like that. I could go do that and know that it's okay. Whereas actually one of the people that I work with right now, she's based out of here in Calgary. She's her own solar entrepreneur. She does some uh, contract work to me um, and she's fantastic at what she does loves the client base she has and the work that she does with us and she went overseas I think it was maybe four months ago five months ago and she probably even a little bit longer I believe it was uh, the end of summer last year she went overseas just for two weeks or three weeks over to Amsterdam over to Europe and she wanted to tour around there and she asked me a bunch of questions. Well, okay, I want to do the digital nomad thing. Like, what? Yeah. She didn't really have a lot of work to do, so she chose that. But she's like, I also want to do the digital nomad thing for like six months. So I'm like, well, this is a great little test. Everywhere you are, everywhere you're doing, every few hours, just ask yourself if you had to stop and do some work right now, what does that look like? Is it possible? Is it impossible? Things could come up when you're that solo entrepreneur and somebody reaches out to you, especially when you're tied into things like social media and stuff like that. You know, if clients want to have meetings, what is your time zone difference and so on? So she came back from this trip and she's like, oh my God, I don't think I could do it, which I don't agree with. I think she could absolutely rock it. Like she's amazing. And you know, with the right plan in place, you can do it. 
but she said there were so many times that it's like you're out having drinks at seven o'clock, eight o'clock. Cause you meet all these other people at the hostels and everything. Oh, yeah. And they're all like, yeah, we're going to go do this and this. And it's like, well, no, it's 10 o'clock at night. I actually have to hop online for a couple hours of meetings and then I got to do some deliverables and so on. And she's just like, how did you do it for years? <laughs> and I'm like, because I have great team members like you. You were here. You were in the time zones that you dealt with people. You guys did that for me and just kept me up to date. So with those two boats, the solo entrepreneur that's tied into things, if they have something established and they're only working with mostly a local client base, when they have been doing that for a year or two and they're doing well and now they feel that they've got some financial means to do so and you know they want to go over to Thailand, to Chiang Mai or to Bali or anywhere like that and be part of that digital nomad community, they don't realize that the hours that you're working here are not going to change much when you're over there. You might do your operations, your fulfillment stuff, but if you do three hours of meetings and four hours of fulfillment, those three hours of meetings are still going to be at local Calgary time. So you're going to be online eight o'clock at night or what did I do when I was in Bali? Um, a lot of times I'm an early morning riser. So a lot of times I'd have 5 a.m. meetings, which I believe at the time was 3 p.m. back here in Calgary. So get up 4, 4.30 in the morning, get ready, have a couple hours of meetings, which would wrap up people's days over here. And then I could talk to any of my fulfillment teams that are typically, you know, India, Nepal, Vietnam, Philippines, Bulgaria, Macedonia. So I could talk to all of them in hours that were better suited for them as well. So when I was completely on the other side of the world, my team found me to be a better tool for them. I was able to provide better for them, support them better, yep. and so on. Yep. Definitely a challenge with the clients that were local. But on the plus side, I'm like, I've got clients all over the world. We've got clients in different locations. The last year I was in Bali, the majority of my business was going into Kuala Lumpur and to Singapore and working with various software startups and being asked to talk about how to use remote workers because a lot of times they're hiring people in North America or South America to help with sales and stuff like that. So how are you talking to people? You know, there's such a difference in cultures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I was hired to consult on a lot of that stuff. And actually there's a book called The Culture Map. And this book changed my life with dealing with clients in different countries. What it taught me about understanding different cultures and within those cultures, what are the nuances? Like some cultures, if you're not the boss, when you're in a meeting, you just say yes to everything. If somebody else is not part of that, you just say yes to everything. And that actually, until I learned a lot more and was able to better draw out answers from people, I just got, does everyone agree? Does this sound good? Yep. Yeah. And then you go do it. And then, you know, when it was all done, everyone's like, oh, this isn't anything like we want. I'm like you guys said yes to everything. Well, yeah, but the boss doesn't play. So, so it, uh, it can be challenging, right. but it's so rewarding. I lived on a glamping tent on a tiny little island called Buka Buka that was off the central Sulawesi area of Indonesia. And there's a little eco resort there. A friend of mine, Thomas, he'd built a co-live, co-work place in Bali called Hustler's Villa, had it up in Ubud. He ended up buying a piece of an island, two kilometers wide at its biggest point. And he built this eco resort, wow. six lamping tents on the beach, one villa, all solar power, brought in a desalination system, built a permaculture garden. Like it is fully self-sustainable. Oh my God. I want to go and, there. Uh, yeah. It's called... 
Yeah, yeah. All I do is want to go back, take people back there. It's called Reconnect Island, Reconnect yeah. Island Resort, or Reconnect Eco Resort, or something like that. Um, but it's it's awesome. All right, link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. It uh, when you go to Google Maps and type in you know Reconnect Island Resort, right. and then you know how you always browse through the pictures that people have taken. One of their pictures, it's one of the first few up there. They've got a boat out in the water taking a picture of the beach with the six glamping tents. If you just glance at it, six glamping tents. But if you zoom in on it, the very left glamping tent, you see this guy just sitting in a chair. Like, that's me. I, I was like the first guy that stayed there for longer than two or three days. I stayed for 45 days. Nice. I remember those photos too. Thanks for sending those wow. over. That's insane. So, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And you just walk off the front steps of your little glamping tent, which is all up on a wooden base. You'd walk off the step. If tide was in, you had maybe six feet and you're walking into the ocean. Tides out, you got maybe 300 feet. That would only be about a foot deep. And then this massive drop of about 30 meters. So it was just deep, dark ocean there right away. And you'd go out there every day. I'd just swim out and then I'd snorkel along that edge. Just watch the sun setting, snorkel, see all the fish. Sometimes dolphins would be going by or barracudas swimming by you. And then you go in and you have some fresh mango juice and they, you know, fry up some fish that they caught that day or barbecue some fish or some chicken. And then you just sit around and then you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and like, "Hmm, what should I, well, let's, let's walk, you know, a kilometer to the other side of the island and snorkel over there today. Like that was how tough life was for a while. So (laughs) I want to go back there too now. All right. God, yes. (laughs) I can't, I can't imagine the Wi-Fi is very good out there though. You know, you would be surprised. So Thomas has set up a strong Wi-Fi router repeater and whatever it is. To the island, there's no signal, or there's a signal, but it's from the mainland. The mainland is probably 30 kilometers away, and you can just see it in the the edge there. It provides full 3G cell signal. And we're so used to 5G now, everything's instant. But even with that 3G signal, I could still post pictures on Instagram, post a picture on Instagram, and then I'd set down my phone and I'd go do something else for 25 minutes and come back and be like, oh, good, (laughs) it got done, or oh, it failed, right? But it still worked. And I actually ran a video Zoom call from there that I did a little bit of video and it was a little choppy. But once I went to audio, I was online for an hour with eight people. It's part of a business book club that Connor Curran, that's one of the founders of Local Laundry here in Calgary. He runs this business book club. And there I was two years ago on this island partaking in a Zoom video call on just the little 3G service. And I think soon, I haven't paid attention myself, but I think soon Indonesia is going to be approved for using Starlink satellite systems. So I know Thomas is going to buy one of those in a second, and then it's just going to turn into a digital nomad beach resort. So, wow. or maybe that, maybe he won't buy one because of that. I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. So, so on, on a larger scale, connectivity being such a big part of what we do, how important is it? And how much information is available about connectivity in all of these various places? Like, I know Sean was up in, it was Mongolia, wasn't it? Well, I've been so many places. I never went to Mongolia, though. What about it? I was just wondering, like, how do you get your your day-to-day done when you need to be so connected to the internet all the time? Is is there, like, a map of internet connectivity or something out there that you just constantly refer to? Yeah. You're referring to the firewall, yeah. right? Like the Great Firewall of China. 
Well, there's the firewall in China that can cause some issues, but just in general, like yeah. there are still parts of the world that don't have internet, right? How is the connectivity out there in Eastern Europe versus Shanghai versus West Coast Australia versus North Coast Africa? So before I left Calgary for Bali, I think I had internet speed of 150 megs a second or something like that. Three, four years ago, now I got 2.5 gigabit. Great. But back then, I think I had 150 megs. And you could probably get a little bit more, but it does everything we need. I land on Bali, this tiny little island in the middle of all these islands, and I go to a co-working space, and I got 500 megs a second, and I pay $19 a month for a co-working membership. So, Oh, wow. That's crazy yeah. cheap. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Uh, I'm just trying to find. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but there's a website out there that I used to use that you'd basically just type in the country and like it would sort all the countries. It was all made for digital nomads, but you would know like, hey, here's my approximate budget for living every month, and do I need good Wi-Fi? Do I want good food options? Sort. And there was four or five values that it rated all these different countries. From and not just countries, but also locations like Chiang Mai versus Koh Lanta, and those are both in Thailand. Chiang Mai is, from what I understand, I've never been to Chiang Mai, and the reason I've never actually gone to Chiang Mai is because all I've ever heard is Chiang Mai is the biggest collective area of digital nomads. If you're a digital nomad, that's where you go. Yeah, I've heard this too. Yeah, and I'm like, well, that's great, but I don't want to just go to be surrounded by people that are me going somewhere else. I want to go somewhere where I can also truly experience the culture. And you probably can there. I'm not saying you can't, but I like to go to the smaller, quieter places. And I ended up spending a couple months on the island of Colanta at a co-work, co-live place called CoHub. And CoHub was, I believe, owned by a couple Australian guys. They set it up. It was stunning. Internet speeds were like six, seven hundred megs a second. This co-working space was so awesome. There was the beach and then like some tree lines and stuff. And then the co-working space, you know, the big jungle yard with different spots you could sit. Then you had some open air spots and then you had the air conditioned rooms. But as much as all that was great, they also had their own little kitchen there that sold food. So this place, you could, whatever it was, uh, pad thai or whatever you wanted, would do it all up. But Cohub had created a website so you could just sit in your, whatever chair you're at had a number. Like, oh, I'm at desk number 47 today. I could go on to there and just go, I want pad thai, I want a yogurt this, or I want that. Pay with PayPal. And then while I still sit there and focus working, then food gets sat down beside me. The only thing you got to do is go up to go to the bathroom. Everything else you can have delivered to you so that you really can just deep work if you need to. And I thought that was really really cool it also doesn't help like the stand stats on your apple watch but it was just it was just like i'm hungry just okay yeah order that because you know as soon as you stop you get up from your desk you go over to get something you talk to a couple other people now instead of a two minute thing it's a 45 minute thing and then you got to get back into that deep work so i think they won me over with that there and my experience on that island and then taking the ferries out to the pp islands and touring around there are you familiar with the PP Islands, Mike, or, or Sean as well? No, I'm not familiar nope. with them, no. Nope. Okay. So um, there was a movie. Leonardo DiCaprio was in it. Basically, he, he met some people. Like, they lived on an island. You'd have to swim to the island. Then you got into the community. Is that called the island? I think it's actually called the island, right? Uh, yeah, 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 that's absolutely right. So, yeah, like, touring those places, going and checking, like, spending a couple days there, even though I'm – 
on Colanta and the beautiful beaches yeah. and food and the co-working space, you still go away for a couple of days and have a vacation, just like we would go out to the mountains here for a couple of days. And, um, you know, those experiences are by far, yeah, they're amazing. I've lived the life I want to live when I retire. And if I end up having to work forever now, I'm okay with that because I already had my retirement years. Like I barely did any work for four or five years. It was just talk to people, had the team do the work, and then you make a profit on that and it supports the lifestyle. And you didn't have to charge outrageous rates because you can live like a king for 1500 Canadian dollars a month. Where here, you know, you're just barely paying rent for a one-bedroom condo downtown at $1,500 and you got all your other bills. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a very cool cool experience traveling around and experiencing these places so in fact it is a paradise for those who can manage to begin this lifestyle if they can continue it yeah yeah absolutely all right so you've mentioned co-working space co-working versus hotel room what are the differences pros and cons benefits at what point does it make sense to get into a co-working space versus just working out of a hotel room or an Airbnb? Yep. Cause even a lot of the Airbnbs will have decent Wi-Fi. I think the biggest thing would be community as well as your own work ethic. And when I say work ethic, I'm sitting at home right now and I've got a computer in front of me, but I've also got a PlayStation five, eight feet away from me. And if I'm like, Oh, you know what? I'm going to take a lunch break. I'll play PS five just for 20 minutes, a little bit of call of duty just to like recharge, refresh, and then get back to work. Next thing you know, it's going to be three hours later. Yeah. So as you know, so if, if you are the type of person that gets easily distracted, can get distracted away from that work and go take that break. I really think the co-working spaces can be beneficial for you. Although there may be more distractions, I think you'll feel that you're in that more of a work environment. For me, I'd love going to a core, even if I didn't need to go to a co-working space. Like when I lived in the Ubud area, like I leased a home for two years. I brought in my own internet. I could 100% work from home. But then I'm just a person at home. It was me and my girlfriend and the odd like jungle dog that would come and try and eat one of the cats we had. You know, like that was that was the excitement. But the community you have at the co-working spots, you see the people that are there over and over and over. So they're like, yeah, I've been here four months or six months. And then you meet people that are like, oh, I'm only in town for a week. Great. Cool. Let me show you Clear Cafe. They have the best ahi tuna. You know, let me show you this. So you get to play tour guide a little bit, but also create a new connection. And that is, I think one of the key things that's truly helped me build my successful business because most of the people that do work for me work with me, I should say, are all people that I have met at some point around the world. I've sat down, had a meal with them typically, or there's been a whatever event that we've had drinks at together and met. And I've just got to know them as a person. And I definitely feel a lot of my decisions are based on how do I feel about you? Like two people could do great work, but if I just feel that someone's trying to scam me and it's like, oh, it's all about the dollar per hour. And somebody else is talking about how they just, they got into this because they loved helping, you know, so-and-so with whatever. And then they saw how that could help and they're helping more people and helping. I'm like, cool, let's, how do we work together? How do we make this something that can course be profitable for us both but we can help more people help more businesses so all those connections that i've made have been because of the co-working co-live places and one of the biggest brands out in uh, southeast asia out there for co-working spaces is outpost 
And Outpost is actually created by, I believe it was a couple of guys from the US. One of them might have been from Australia. But the one fellow, he used to work for the White House. And he wrote a book about energy. And I can't remember exactly what took him over there. But in 2015, I was over there with three people on my team. And we got to go to the grand opening of Outpost in Ubud. It was their first location. Got to meet him, got to meet a bunch of people. And Outpost was always the place that I went to. They have two or three locations around Bali, Indonesia now. They've got a location in Sri Lanka. I believe they have a location in Thailand somewhere now. COVID kind of changed some of where their locations were or what stayed open. And I haven't kept up with it. So, But Outpost was a place that I knew doesn't matter where it was coming from or whatever. It's open 24 hours. There's air-conditioned rooms. There's private rooms to have Skype meetings in or do a podcast or something. I just knew that I could show up at any time and have good internet and a comfortable place to work. Didn't matter whether it was in the Chenggu area or the Kuda area or the Ubud. Like I just knew. If you show up to Outpost, you got good internet and you got a team there that is like, what do you need? Do you need printing? Do you need whiteboards? Do you need to have a boardroom? Like, what do you need? There's someone there to help. Just knowing that as I traveled around, that that's always there. You know, I kind of had that a little bit with Regis. Regis is around the world, but it's very like corporate structure. Here's your office. But when I had a Regis account probably eight, nine years ago with a company I had when I was living in Regina, Saskatchewan, I did a ton of travel overseas or down into the States. And I just knew I could walk into any Regis, show my card, and sit down at a table there and have internet. Very quiet, professional atmosphere, much different than the co-working, co-living type places, but it was there. And Outpost was that for me, that it was just like a family. And I still see posts that I see it from them on social media that like or interact with or they'll like and they're like when are you coming back ryan like we miss you we can't we haven't seen you for a couple of years I'm like i know i really want to but right now i'm just building something bigger and better so when i go over i don't have to work as much so all right so so far we have some some pro tips here um go to the uh <laughs> fly through shanghai get to stay over there Right. All right. That's uh, Singapore. Oh, Shangi. No. Singapore. No. Yeah. Yeah. Singapore. Yeah. At Singapore. Okay. The yeah. the next tip was to um, go to a co working space so that you can get connected with community and really figure out what's happening yeah. in the local area, not just what's happening with the work. And the other one was to uh, make sure that you can really. Um, dedicate yourself to getting the work done first and then play second what's uh you got some other tips advice in there i yep i do have insurance oh yes insurance (laughs) is what (laughs) yeah oh yeah so you know yeah it insurance can catch you like the you have a scooter accident you get a little scrape on your knee and now all of a sudden you know the way the police are involved and the all that kind of stuff it's just like you're gonna pay way too much in bribes or you can just actually have insurance and when you go to the hospital it's like the president has arrived because you have insurance and it's like what do you need like we we treat you perfectly but um company i used for for insurance was safety wing like, w- yeah world nomads is another one, one but I safety used, wing yeah. is okay yeah, yeah safety wing was the one that i used yeah. so yeah and safety i uh i didn't i didn't have insurance for a while 
didn't have it. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Like, I'm still kind of young. I'm kind of healthy. Like, you know, whatever. Worst case scenario happens, I'll deal with it. And then I finally put insurance in place. And I, it was uh, December of 2019. Got my safe doing insurance. Well, next thing you know, COVID hits three months later. Now, I've been paying $89 a month for three months. And COVID hits, and there is a clause in Safety Wing that I'm if there is sure a global pandemic or something like that, that, you know, you know, whatever happens, they will pay to fly you back to your home country. Oh. So all of a sudden I could call them. Yeah. So I'm like calling them <laughs> like, hey, you know, I, I got like 10 days to leave the country and so on. Like, do you guys help? With it? Oh, yeah, we'll get it. So all the digital nomad boards I was involved in, like everyone's talking because everyone's flying around. They're like, you can't fly through this country anymore. This country shut down the transit flights now. Like it was get, we were close to getting, I think it was March 25th that everything kind of like was the last couple of flights. I flew home on March 24th. Like it was, it was that close, but um, they booked a flight for me and I told them right on the phone because I, I think it was from, from Denpasar, which is on Bali, yeah, yeah. to Jakarta, Jakarta to Taipei, Taipei oh, to wow. Vancouver. Yeah, so they booked that, and I'm like, it's not going to work. Oh, yeah, it's going to work. It, if it doesn't work, it's not going to allow us to book us. I'm like, Taipei's shut down the transit. Like, I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm telling you guys, Taipei's shut down the transit. No, if it lets us book, it's fine. Three hours later, I get a call. So it looks like your flight's canceled. You know, we got to rebuy. I'm like, yes, I know. So, so they end up booking me something else that went through Seattle and then up to Calgary. And I'm like, you can't, the U S has shut down the transits. I can't do a transit. Like, Oh, did you put that you had a U.S. passport? Like maybe that's why I had a lot. I'm like, no, you guys know I'm Canadian, all this stuff. So I had to cancel that. Finally, they booked me. Denpasar to Jakarta, Jakarta to Tokyo, Japan, Japan to Vancouver, Vancouver to Calgary. But the challenge is, by the time we were getting to those last couple of days of flights, the only seat left to get me home was business class. Oh. So I paid 89 <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was luxury all the way home. $89 a month for, yeah. Yeah. $89 nice. a month for three months. And then I go into Expedia and I'm like, okay, if I want to do this route to go home and Expedia tells me this flight is like $21,000. Yeah. And I'm like, insurance has finally paid off for me like this is fantastic <laughs> so you know crappy times of course but uh but yeah so and, and you know what safety wing like was no questions that like i called them all right i gotta go back to canada it says you guys can help and they're like yep absolutely and they were there with me till i got home and uh it was yeah perfect so anyone that's doing a digital nomad get your safe doing insurance or world nomads, or if yeah. there's something else out there that I'm not aware about, but you know, that little bit of investment will just save you so much in any sort of issue that you come across. Absolutely. And I, I will say that it does benefit some people more than others. I know that for myself, yeah. I looked into the cost of actually fixing the, the medical problems that I had without going through insurance. And it turns out I would have actually paid a lot less without purchasing insurance but the insurance helps because it gives you that peace yeah. of mind so in my case i had really really hurt my injured myself while exiting uh, a ferry when entering one of the oh. one of the islands of pataya so pataya is a small island uh, based just outside of bangkok actually it's just on the on the ocean there um anyway i really really got injured to the point where they had to be on like a gurney and, and they have like no medical supplies on this island and so i was just you know i imagine the panic that i would have felt if i didn't have any insurance i would be wondering how much will this cost if i have to get airlifted if i have to get 
placed into emergency or something like that, it turns out that the cost was really low. And so eventually insurance did cover it, but you know, it was like, it was so cheap. It was like $50 or something Canadian for the entire stay. It really wasn't that much at all. And I did stay, I don't think I stayed overnight, but they definitely helped me, you know, get me bandaged up Mm -hmm. and everything. And in the other case, I had a problem in India and I came up with a real, real bad infection, a skin infection. And uh, they just gave me some, um, some medicine, some vitamins and some antifungals or something like that. But it really didn't cost, it cost, like I looked at the cost and it cost, it costs like five dollars <laughs> so yeah like it just depends on the person but i think for most it's just worth having like why not why not cover yourself in those situations if something bad does happen then at least you 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 have coverage although i will say if you are canadian and specifically if you are an albertan if you live in the province of alberta within canada they do offer some medical care outside of the country. So definitely have a look at that if you're interested. I believe it's covered by Alberta Blue Cross, but I might be wrong about that. Somebody can correct me. Yeah, I haven't tried any of that stuff, but I I know even like with dental work, you know, when I was over in Bali, I've, I've got a fake tooth in the front. And I would love, I, I wish, I, I'll tell you the story, but then I'm going to tell you, it was, um, you know, I'm just lying. Um, I'm like, got in this great fight, protected someone on the beach, and, you know, they didn't steal anything then and got the purse back or whatever. Oh but God. I got punched and my front tooth got knocked out. But the real truth is I was sitting on the beach watching sunset, drinking a coconut with a bamboo straw, and I lifted the straw. And, of course, the bamboo straw hit my tooth because I wasn't paying attention, knocked my tooth out. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah, oh, so knocks straw. my tooth out. It's, uh, yeah, so this vicious bamboo straw knocked my crown out, and I'm like, oh, my God, now I look like I'm a boxer or a hockey player. Like, i got to get this fixed. This is probably going to come. I'm like, oh, I've got insurance. Okay, so I look at it. I'm like, oh, it covers up to 800 bucks or whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, I got quoted back here in Canada almost four grand for doing teeth whitening first and then doing the crown so that everything matches. And I'm like, well, okay, well, good. I got insurance. Save some. I go to a dental place there. First, I go online to like the expat Facebook group for Ubud and just go like, need dental work. Where does everyone go? And like 90% of the answers are this one spot. I go there. It's like a pristine hospital. And they're like, oh, yeah, come on in. Take a look at it. They did three um, three different treatments for whitening. It, it extended things a, a few weeks, but I really wanted to, you know, go back to like true white. Three different treatments for whitening and then did my crown. And my final bill, I didn't even use insurance. My final bill when all was said and done was $390. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, this is this is amazing. Like if someone back here tells me four grand for a tooth, I'm like, well, I'm going to take four grand, but I'm going to fly to Bali, spend a month and a half, get my tooth done and enjoy the rest of the time and then fly back. Maybe it won't last 15 years. Maybe it'll only last 10 years, but so be it. Sounds like another reason to go back to Bali. <laughs> yeah. You hear about these people who go all the way down to like Mexico or to the different parts of the third world countries to get their dental work done. And it's not uncommon to hear about these stories. Uh, it just, it turns out that, well, Canada and the U.S. charge an absorbent amount of money for any kind of healthcare. So <laughs> unless you're in Canada, in which case most yeah. of the time you get it for free, although we don't cover dental in Canada. So yeah, yeah you hear right. about these stories. Yeah. All right, so I have a question for both of you. Whenever I leave the house, I know I have my keys, my wallet, my watch, and my pants on. When you're packing your bag or your backpack, what are five things that are absolutely positively double-checked, triple-checked to make sure that you have in there? 
Okay. I'll let you go first, Sean. I know what I generally carry in my bag. So what I mostly double check, triple check, quadruple check, passport. <laughs> Number one, passport. All right. That's good. Yeah. I have to have my passport to travel. So if I don't have that, and I actually have a second passport as well. So I have a US passport. So I sometimes make sure that I have that depending on the trip. And sometimes I make sure that I don't have it because in certain situations, I don't want to present my US passport. It just depends on the country that I visit. Another thing I make sure to have, obviously my phone, but oftentimes I, I have I have at certain points left my home and not had my phone and it hasn't been the biggest deal because I drive somewhere or whatever but if I'm going to the airport I, I definitely need to have my phone especially if I use it to do my work I know that in my last trip I used it a lot to hop on zoom calls for example I would find myself on a bus and then I would have to take a call so I would just hop on zoom the other thing I need to make sure that I have is my headset so that I can actually hop on calls and do meetings so that's actually this thing here that's this uh, I'll show you guys so it's the Sony Bluetooth headphones, the WHMX 1000, I believe. They do a really good job. They have like the best noise canceling and I get those from Costco. So they have a really good price and you can always return them later if you don't like them. So anyway, so I have those, that's another thing. And then of course money, because a lot of cases when I travel to countries, I need to have money. So those are kinds of the things that I really make sure that I have outside of obviously clothes and cosmetics. And for myself, I also have a medical condition. So I need to make sure that I have the adequate amount of medication to keep me alive, essentially. <laughs> I don't know about you, Ryan. Yeah, wow. I think my bag is smaller than yours based on that list. But I think the biggest thing for me was always money. But money had to be split into two different pockets full of money and one had to be hidden. Because especially driving around Indonesia on a oh, scooter. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah, I'd have my passport and I'd have my international driver's license. I always paid the hundred bucks or whatever you have to pay back here to get that. But I had those with me, but you wanted about 500,000 in your pocket, that Indonesian rupiah, which would be about $50 Canadian. And then if you typically have like 4 million, 5 million in your pocket, which is 400 or 500 bucks, you would put that in a hidden spot. Because when you get stopped, because you know you're going to get stopped because there's a thousand bikes on the road and you get stopped for driving while being a tourist. And then, of course, it's like, well, you didn't signal way back there. So it's like a two million dollar fine. But we got to give you a ticket and you got to go to court. But, you know, like I talked to my sergeant over there and like if you can pay like one million today, we can let you go. And like, you know, it's just a bribe. I called it a luxury tax. You know what? It's beautiful island. If I somehow help this officer pay for his groceries for his family for a month or whatever, so be it. But I would not keep more than like 500000 because I knew that was kind of that talking to other people. You always just kind of knew what was the local value that you knew you could get away with and get done. Because, you know, you, you signaled just fine. You're probably the only one that signaled in the group of a thousand people that turned that corner. And then you just get targeted. So you got to have your money, your passport, international driver's license if you do have one of those. And then, yeah, whatever device I'm going to have with me, charging cable for it, because every coffee shop you could go hang out in always had plugins everywhere because that it is their market. Like they know the digital nomads are all here. We all want to plug in our phones or our laptops and then a headset as well. And I always made sure I had, like I've been using AirPods, AirPod Max for AirPod Pros and so on since they've been out. But I always made sure I had one wired headset with me just in case something else died, couldn't charge it at the time or so on that I could still just plug in and handle any meetings that came up. Right on. 
I guess uh, I hadn't really even considered what might happen or how often you can get access to power to charge devices. It's something I kind of take for granted right now. Last time I was in through an airport, probably 10 years ago, I think. It's been a while since I've actually traveled. At that time, you know, I wasn't going all that far, just over to Vancouver on a short three-day trip. It was pretty easy to find charging. Yeah, cool. I found the website. I finally remembered it. Nomadlist.com. Yes, I know this website. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'm looking at it right now. You know, most popular right now is Buno Aires in Argentina. Number two is Bangkok, Thailand, and Mexico, Changu. So you can go through here and you can filter based on do you want things that are in Oceania area, Europe, what sort of budgets. You know, like if I hover over Changu, Bali, Overall, it looks like it's about 75%. Cost is great. Internet, fun, and safety are all full greens. Let you go to, you know, areas Argentina, everything's mostly green except for safety. Safety is a yellow warning. It's about 50%. So you go through nomadlist.com and digital nomads from around the world have ranked, provided information. This is a source I used a lot. I'm not a member anymore. But when you are a member, you get groups, you get access to different groups. When you go to Ubud, you can mark yourself in Ubud. And now like 40,000 other nomads that might be around Bali or something could go on here and go like, oh, there's some cool people. Oh, this guy's in software. Yeah. You know what? We're running a little get together for tech guys. Let's invite them over. And so it made connections and everything there as well. So Ryan, I want to ask you a question. As somebody who's traveled a lot as well, I say a lot, meaning like I'm close to 50 or over right now traveling meaning i've actually visited a country for more than like three days um <laughs> that's that's yep. what it means in my opinion but i have experienced certain fatigue from traveling a lot at one point in time like i remember i traveled for about three months and even by like the second month i felt exhausted because of all the things i had to remember like not just insurance but maintaining the meetings in my schedule where i'll go next the visas especially we haven't even talked about the visas and i know specifically that within indonesia you need to have a business visa if you want to stay longer than a certain amount of time so how do you manage all that stress from going to different places like do you travel to certain countries for longer periods of time and have longer stays or do you just try to manage it all yourself with productivity tools like to-do lists or those kinds of things? Yeah, yeah, great question. And good point on the visas there as well. So myself, I manage everything. I've got OCD on a certain level that, you know, if I can plan it all out, put it in my calendar, you know, I, I probably spend more time organizing my calendar than actually working on things, which is probably the problem of the OCD about it sometimes. Like time to reorganize it all, be more efficient. But going from place to place, I always looked at it. I wanted to be there legally. I always wanted to do that. I didn't want to run into a situation that was going to cause me problems for the future. So even with Europe, Canadian visa, you land, you get 90 days, and I can sit in a co-working space and I can work. And it was in that gray area at that time, whether it was legal or not. You know, I wasn't going knocking on doors in Europe and asking, hey, do you want to new website? Do you need social media market? I was just purely using the internet to log on and deal with my team that was working on things outside of those countries. So it was all good there. Then something I'll touch on after I talk about what I did for my visas is the digital nomad visas a lot of countries are offering now are fantastic. They're really catching up with what is happening. 
and monetizing what is happening. So they need to do it. But when it came to Indonesia, I did the business visa, but I went through a visa agent. So I paid, like if I had done my business visa by myself, it might have cost 150, 200 bucks Canadian. I paid, I think, about five or 600 bucks to get the business visa. That was good for one year. I didn't have to worry about all the ins and outs, the immigration and all that kind of stuff. You know, paid it, and then that gave me 60 days. So the minute I land in Indonesia, I get a stamp, and I can do whatever I want. You know, I cannot work. So the business visa allowed me to work and talk about work in Indonesia, but I could not actively do work for somebody in Indonesia. So I could go have a meeting about having someone do their website, but then I couldn't sit in their office and build their website. So it was a little touchy and stuff, but with how often I went to KL and to Singapore, it was easy. You know, every five, six weeks, like 45 days, five, six weeks, I was on a plane. I was on an Air Asia plane for $40 round trip and basically flew to KL, popped up to Mariana's Lounge on the 53rd floor of Patronus Tower number three beside the two twin towers. They got a cigar bar, it's a rooftop patio, have some drinks and have a nice cigar and visit a few people and then get on a plane in the morning and fly back. And boom, I got another 60 days. So it worked very well for me for what I was doing. But you always saw a lot of people that no questions asked, well, for the most part, you could always land and get 30 days. You have the visa on arrival program in Indonesia. I'm not sure if that's still active or not. I know some things have changed there. But you'd land, you get 30 days. And then even if you only had 30 days, as long as when you landed, you said, hey, I want to pay like $25 to get the right to apply for another 30 days without having to go anywhere, you could do that. But then you had to go down immigration like two weeks, three weeks later, get your fingerprints taken, answer a few questions about why you want this extension, and then all you get is another 30 days. So you only get 60 days anyway, which then they'd have their full 60, and then they'd hop on a plane, go to KL, and then the visa run. Everyone was doing that. There was buses that would leave Ubud and go like, hey, we got 30 people doing a visa run to KL tonight. And you'd fly out at 11 o'clock at night, land in KL, get a stamp. A couple hours later, get back on the plane and fly back and get a stamp. So I never did a visa run like that. I was like, if I'm going to go to KL, I'm going to like stay for even just one day, two days, three days, tour around a little bit, have some fun, like make that a little bit of a holiday itself. So I did that. But the way the world has changed in the last few years, digital nomad visas coming like Indonesia has a digital nomad visa now. I believe their requirement, and don't quote me, you guys want to Google this if you're listening to it, because things can always change as well. But I believe if you can show you have 100,000 Canadian dollars or US or value of the equivalent of 100,000 US dollars or something in your bank account. It says requires proof for funds up to 14,000 US dollars. Yeah, I think it, it, <laughs> it's, it depends now. They, they change it all the time. So, you know, for our listeners, definitely go and review yeah. whatever it says on the official website. We'll put, we'll put a link in the show notes as well. Perfect. Because um, I think they're offering a 10-year digital nomad visa. So I I don't know if that's 14,000 per year or so on. So like if you want to go for 10 years, I think you show you have 140 grand in the bank or assets of or whatever, which a lot of digital nomads, they have that. Oh yeah, I own two apartments in London that I just rent out the flats and I just travel or whatever. So all of a sudden you can go to these countries and they look at that like if that was a one-year digital nomad visa that that 14,000 US goes, what they're basically saying is for you to live here a year, 14,000 US dollars will support you on your own. So 1,100, 1,200 US dollars a month 
and you have more than enough money to support yourself in Indonesia for a whole year. We can blow that on a week. Well, Mike, you and I have gone out golfing to Silvertip and had steak dinners. Like we spend more on one round of golf and some steak dinners and some drinks than you know it would cost to live for a month in Bali. What are we doing? <laughs> I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> I have a sort of moment yep. of realization yep. where Indeed. you realize yep. that okay, what have I been doing my whole life? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then you also look at the country of Estonia. They created the e-residency. Yeah. Like I started meeting people in Bali and I'm like, oh, where are you from? And they're like, I am a citizen of the world. And at first when I hear this, I'm like, oh, this is getting real foo-foo now. Like this is going to be good. (laughs) I am a citizen of the world, but I have an e-residency with Estonia. So like technically I'm a European EU person, all this. And I'm like, so at first I was just like, what is this all about? All right, you know, like there's always something new, but I always have a little bit of skepticism about some things when they sound too good to be true. Yeah. And yeah, but then running remote conference came for their second or third year to Bali. They had it in the summer of 2019. The running remote conference, it's still put on. It's by uh, Liam. Yeah, I got his book right here. So running remote is a fantastic, any digital nomad that is listening right now, I don't like to should on people. I always say should on people, but you should read the running remote book. It's by Liam Martin and Rob Rawson. Liam is from Montreal, Canada, and Rob is from Australia. They are the co-founders of the SaaS platform timedoctor.com. So they created a remote work conference, brought big names like Todoist, like all these people to this conference. I think there was almost 3,000 attendees. But the country of Estonia actually came and had a booth. This is actually where I met Zeb, the founder of ClickUp. ClickUp is the project management tool and everything that we use in our business. And I would say 99% of my decision to use it was just interacting, getting to know Zeb while we were in Bali together at the same time and learning about why he wanted to create ClickUp and so on. But yeah, so running remote conferences there, the country of Estonia is there. They give a talk about what they do and and you can get an e-residency with them that you get a little uh, secure little flash drive that you plug into your computer that you can put your fingerprint on. doesn't matter where you are in the world. You are a citizen of their country. You can vote. You can pay your taxes. Like you put this into your computer, put your fingerprint on it, and you vote. And it's just amazing. So I looked into thinking about trying to do it. But the first thing you have to do is, as a Canadian citizen, and I'm living in Bali, you have to deal with the Estonia embassy in your home country. Well, that's in Ottawa or Toronto or something like that. I'm like, I'm not flying all the way home just to start this process or so on. So I never ended up diving into it myself, but a lot of people did. And I think it was very helpful. I didn't really see the long-term results of it because it's been a few years that that's been going now, but be very interesting. Uh, Who else moved over there? Founder of Mind Valley, Vikram? What was it? When I look at the website here, it looks like an incubator website almost that they talk about how you can join a community of other startup businesses in the Estonia area and work 100% in English. It almost reads like like the co-living community or the outpost that you mentioned earlier. So what benefit can people get from becoming an e-residency citizen of Estonia? So 
the benefit that I understood that would be there is some people from certain countries that don't necessarily have the easiness of travel, like we do have with our Canadian passports and stuff like that. But by being an Estonia resident, then now they're able to do that. Lower tax bracket. I think I think for a while, you, know, you could have a startup company registered in Estonia and you'd pay like 0% tax for your first five years or 10 years or so. So now it runs into that. What I heard is Estonia is actually one of the countries with the most free public Wi-Fi coverage of any other country in the world. You could be out walking through a forest and easily have free Wi-Fi coverage. Don't know how accurate that is again as well. Like there's a lot of things you hear when you're sitting on an island, sipping on coconuts and <laughs> 30 cent bintang beer bottles. <laughs> so, but yeah, so what I've seen just in the last couple of years of the digital nomad visas popping up, the countries that are now supporting digital nomads coming in, because before it used to be, you had to be careful in some of these co-working spots because all of a sudden immigration would do a raid of a co-working space. Like, who's here? How long have you been here? What are you working on? And people would just get deported from the country and blacklisted or fined or whatever. So now with the adoption of all these digital nomad visas, it's absolutely fantastic to see that there is more global opportunities available for a lot of people to travel. And I love that idea. All right. I'm curious about some of the harder, more detailed stuff like money. I want to know how, when you're Canadian and you're working abroad, how does the money thing work? How do you get those other currencies from your Canadian bank? How does that all work? And also, Ryan, how does it work when you have staff in multiple different countries? How do you get the payment stuff organized and sorted out? That seems kind of convoluted to me. Is crypto the big win here for this or what's going on? <laughs> no, at least not for us and not for me. Um, I, I can speak to the crypto part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, go, go, go for the crypto part right now, Sean. Yeah. Well, I used to use it quite a bit when I traveled. For example, in mainland China, I used it quite a bit to get the local currency because it is quite a bit cheaper to use cryptocurrency to move your funds to other fiat currencies. When I was in Australia, I used Bitcoin. I purchased a vehicle. I did a bunch of stuff in Australia. They have a lot more cryptocurrency friendliness than most other countries. I know Singapore is kind of up there in that list as well. Hong Kong is very big as well. Well, slowing down because of the interference from the government there. But I had a lot of success doing that. But since then, since like a month ago or something like that, localbitcoins.com, the website that I used to move my cryptocurrency, shut down. So they no longer operate and you have to use some kind of public exchange like Kraken in Canada or if you guys remember there's crypto.com that's based out of Hong Kong they have a bunch of others that will do the same thing Gemini is also pretty popular but in Canada we also have ShakePay which is nice so there's a bunch of options but essentially you can do that I've had a lot of success doing it it does take a little bit more understanding of the way the cryptocurrency works so for a lot of people they might just opt to use traditional exchanges or just use their credit cards and pay the absorbent fee that they charge which is like 2.8 percent i believe for canadian credit card holders and depending on the credit card you have of course it can vary because they also charge a fee on top of the exchange rate that's good to know thanks sean yeah yeah 100 percent on all that with me i was sometimes in the boat of i just I had an American Express. I had a MasterCard. I had a Visa. I just use that and know like, yeah, I'm paying a little bit of a fee or so on, but it was easy. So did on that side. But when it came to wanting to get cash, I used a card that was available here in Canada called getstack.com, I believe it is. And it's just a prepaid Visa card 
But at the time, and they don't do it anymore, now they charge you, like if you're not spending $350 a month, they're charging you $8 a month. But back when I used it in 2019 and 2020, it was a completely free card, just like your Coho card used to be free and all that. I'd just transfer cash money to it, and it would be an instant tra- I could e-transfer from my Royal Bank account or my BMO account to the stack card, and it was instant. I didn't have to wait for a load time. And then I could go to a bank machine and stack allowed cash withdrawals and using it as a MasterCard. And all they would charge is the current currency change. There was no foreign transaction fees on it. So it was like, well, this is good. When I, I could just walk up to a bank machine, stick the card in, say I want a $5 million withdrawal, which would feel really good because it's like, hey, I'm a millionaire. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like, but yeah, but a million Indonesian rupees is equal to 100 Canadian dollars. It's like, all right. But still, 500 Canadian dollars of value in my pocket in cash, that would last me two weeks, three weeks. You go for breakfast and it's like, oh, well, your breakfast is 25000 That's $2.50, you know, and you have this massive breakfast. You go out for a nice sushi dinner or something like that, and it costs you $7. You know, like we can't even get a can of Coke, two cans of Coke on the table here for $7. So that's how it worked for me. But when you look at how I was paying everyone and how I still pay everybody, we pay through Wise, wise.com. It used to be called TransferWise. Now it's called Wise. They have been a fantastic platform for me to use, very easy for me to use, very easy for my employees and my contractors to use. I haven't looked probably in the last six months. I've always usually done a rate comparison every now and then to see if something might be better. But when I was looking, nothing was either beating it or it was like, I am not going to change 35 people and how they're getting payroll and make them all go to their banks to get more information because I'm going to save an extra 32 cents next month on transaction fees or something like that, right? So everybody I work with, all of my agreements with them, they're all in Canadian dollars. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in Philippines or India or Nepal or Colombia or Bulgaria, you come to, when I say, okay, we want you full time or what is your hourly rate or whatever, I want you to decide your Canadian dollar value rate. Because a lot of them are, oh, let's use US, it's more international. I'm like, yeah, I'm not using US. Like if, if this is a long, if it's short or whatever, yes. You know, if like, hey, this is a three month project and you've been doing this for years and you're 25 US an hour, all right, fine, we'll do that. But if it's like, no, like to see if it's been with me nine years, you know, like we have a contract in Canadian dollars and then my payroll clerk and also my virtual assistant from the Philippines went to see if it's supposed to get a thousand Canadian dollars. She goes into WISE, transfers a thousand Canadian dollars into, he likes being paid in US dollars, even though he's in India, but transfers that thousand Canadian dollars into our US account. And whatever that value is, like if that turns out to be $867 and she screenshots it and then she attaches it to his invoice payment remittance, that $867 US dollars gets transferred to Steve. That's what he gets. So if I agreed to pay him $1,000 US dollars a month, this month it's $1,200. Next month it's $1,325. Like it just goes up and down. I'm like, we need to budget for our clients and our business on Canadian dollars. So everyone agrees to... This is the Canadian rate that you're happy with and whatever currency you want to be paid in, as long as we can do it through WISE, you tell me what that is and we'll transfer it into your account. And they get that money instantly. They can leave it in WISE. They can move it to other currencies if they need to, or they can transfer it to their bank account and pull it out just for their day-to-day stuff. And so far that's worked really well for us. And I haven't heard of or seen something that in my style of world that has 
caught my attention enough to really put some time and effort into research of should I switch everything over. Oh, that was really great. Thanks so much for that one. Yeah, we'll put a note for wise in the show notes here. Yeah, thanks. That was that was great. Good detail on that answer. Can we put my referral link in that uh, show notes? <laughs> yeah, we can. We'll, we'll give you the kickback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. No, no. No, it's all good. I have a question for you, Ryan. Okay. So where do you usually stay when you visit a country? You, you seem to like long-term stays, like for a few months, and then you might come back after a while. But do you use Airbnb? Do you find hotels? What do you prefer? Yeah, great question. I typically would always focus on a co-work, co-live place. Because instantly you're into a community and you're in a community that people come in and out of all the time. So the minute you land, you like, oh, hey, where do I get laundry done? Where do I get my haircut done? Where's the best place to bank? And they will be like, here you go. And Airbnb is like, hey, great. Here's your tea. Here's your coffee. And here's a couple of cool things in the area. But they, at least at that time or in some areas, they weren't geared towards that nomad. It was the tourists that would come by for a week or two. So the other thing is, especially we know this in many aspects of our world and, you know, especially now with AI and never knowing what's real and whatever you're looking at, you look at pictures of an Airbnb. If I land in a country and say like, oh, I booked this Airbnb for a month and then I get there and I'm like, wow, this place is crap. This place is absolutely horrible. It's not somewhere I can stay. You might not be able to get your money back. You've lost it. If you choose to stay and just live through it. It sucks if you can get some of your money back or so on. So that's what I always loved about what is the co-work, co-live place. Or if there's not something like that, I'd grab a hotel. Usually I had an IHG account. So, you know, it was Hilton brand. If there was something out there that could cover that, I'd do three nights at a hotel. Just start with three nights and then go look at some Airbnbs or kind of look around. Even at an apartment, like a couple of times in Kuala Lumpur, I rented an apartment for a couple months and just a little outside of downtown. And it was very easy to do and to handle. But going to Bali, every time I landed, it was always Outpost. Outpost has two or three different co-living spots and then the two different co-working spots. Those um, co-living and co-working spots that they have, like I said, I could get in, instantly know where to get laundry done, where to do whatever. And I would book that for like a full month because I already knew the Outpost brand. I trusted them. I knew the owners. I knew some of the staff. I just knew if I show up there, I'm going to be comfortable and I'm going to have everything I need. But compared to just getting your own little Airbnb, yeah, it's a little more expensive, but it's a concierge service that you're paying for with all of that stuff. But when I knew I was going to stay in Bali for six months that first time, it was like, hey, let's do a month at Outpost. And I stayed at uh, the Outpost co-living place in the Changu area on Bali. And I did that for a month while looking around at a bunch of places around Changu. And then I just decided, you know, I kind of like, like, I love the beach. But I'm a go-to-bed-early, wake-up-early sort of person. And Chengdu is a little bit more of a, we stay up till midnight, 1 o'clock, we party, then we get up at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m., where I'm getting up at 5 a.m. So it wasn't aligning the best with me, but I traveled up to Ubud, stayed for two weeks in the outpost co-living place up there, and that was my world. I was like, I'd always traveled to Ubud a few times for a few days, but now I was just like, I'm in the jungle. Everyone gets up early and does yoga stretching and sunrise meditations and nine o'clock at night ubud is mostly shut down except for like one club or something like that like everything happens during the, like so me being a bit of an older guy and liking to go to bed early 
that worked out well for me. So I looked it around at a few Airbnbs. I stayed at one for a few weeks. And then I met, uh, you know, at that time, the love of my life, started dating Valerie. We met at a co-working space. She was from Russia. She'd lived in Bali for about three years. And we started a great relationship. And she helped people come to Bali and set up yoga retreats. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all she did all day was help people, you know, somebody from America is going to come and run a yoga retreat for 15 people or yoga teaching thing and stuff. So she helped organize all that. And the family that she worked for there... They had this house in Lotundu, which is a little village just south of the Ubud area, just by like 10 minutes by scooter. And they offered to rent us this house. And this house was 50 meters by 100 meters, had a six-foot cement fence around everything. Uh, or sorry, so the property was 50 meters by 100 meters. Had this two-bedroom house, one bedroom upstairs, closed-in air-conditioned with a full bathroom, and then just off it was a little patio area that I set up my home office area, and I basically sat in my chair and looked at the top of all the jungle trees and watched sunsets. Wow. Oh, man, it's beautiful. <laughs> okay. Yeah, go downstairs and got a little kitchen area that's open-air dining, and then you go into the kitchen, which was inside with the extra bathroom, and then another bedroom that was air-conditioned little swimming pool, little garden in the area. I put in a fire pit in the one area. Even though it's hot, it's still nice to sit around a fire pit at night. And then there was a little, we used to do some yoga studio stuff in one corner. That's where we parked our scooters. We had three scooters we parked there, which also had another outdoor bathroom and stuff over there. And then it had a security gate on it. And we were like, well, we want to rent a house for like a year or two years. So they made a deal with us on a rental for two years. And we paid... $2,400 to rent this whole place. For two years? Per year. Oh. Per year. Wow, that's still incredible. Oh, my God. Still, yeah. 200 Canadian dollars per month to rent this whole property. Jesus. And, yeah, like, just... What about utilities or, like, does that include everything? uh, No, didn't include any of that. And we paid our power, which ran us about 50 or $80 a month. And I brought in my own internet, even though we were close to like 15 minutes to outpost, brought in my internet, that was about 50 bucks a month. But really, after paying for groceries, after paying, well, a lady basically came in every single day during the week, she would come in, she'd make our breakfast, she'd clean up everything, she'd do all the sweeping everywhere, make us a lunch, and then prep us some stuff for dinner if we wanted. She was the one that, she would go to the local market, she would make the deals to get our groceries. And so, cause we went to local market, you'd buy a bag of food and it would be $5. If she went to the local market, our bag of $5 food would have been a dollar bag of food. So she would get everything for us and everything like that. So having her taking care of there pretty much, having a landscaper come in once a week and take care of all the property gardens and all, all that kind of stuff, all of that together, rent in, internet in, everything like that, was give or take 700 Canadian dollars a month. That's insane. That Groceries included in that. So yeah, and it, it was fantastic. Yeah, you look at the costs for living here in Canada, and it's like incredibly expensive. Like you said, for a bottle of Pepsi or something like that, something really small runs you way more than you might expect, especially with inflation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was one thing, like as my business would sometimes go through some struggles, when I was overseas, like as much as I might have been struggling, people are like, well, you're like, you don't have as many clients as you usually like, how are you still traveling? I'm like, because I don't have anything here. Everything's in a storage unit. I'm not paying for an apartment. When I'm over in Bali, if I only make $1,000 this month, I'm fine. 
if I'm here, I need to make $10,000 a month to pay all the bills. Well, that's an exaggeration, of course, but you're looking at $3,000, $4,000 because you got vehicle leases. And that was a big thing for me before I went to Tunisia in 2015 and worked on a project. I was the guy that I was like, oh, this is great. Like, life is good. I got a great tech company. I'm making a ton of money. I had my Audi. I had uh, Northwest Corner Penthouse of the Vitro Tower downtown in Mission there. But then I go to Africa for two months and work on a project. And I'm like, I'm in Africa, but I'm spending about eight to $10,000 a month on apartments and cars and insurance and parking and for something that's sitting there doing nothing. Like, And then I'm over there and I'm like, look at how happy people are. And I like to say that was the start of my path to minimalism. Although all my friends that know me, even though I have a lot less than what I used to have because different things became important to me, they say I'm nowhere close to minimalism. And I sit here in my living room going, of course, I'm a minimalist. I only have what I want. I don't have everything that I want. So, you, know. you were in Tunis, right? In Tunisia or were you outside of the capital? Um, yeah, we were based on the island of Jerba. So we were based over there. And then we did some work with Project Aguila and basically went out in jeeps and camels out into the desert right along the border with Pakistan there. It was interesting, challenging times, but an absolute blast. One of the days we got to go tour, I didn't realize Star Wars, the very first Star Wars, so Star Wars number four, a lot of it was shot. Like Tantooine is an actual town in Tunisia. And you go there and like I went down into Luke Skywalker's home with his aunt and uncle at the start. He goes down into the hole, has lunch with them. I've had lunch where they shot this movie down in this hole. Really? Absolutely cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to show you some pictures sometimes. I'll just scroll yeah, through sure, like yeah, the phone thanks. of thousands of people. Like, oh yeah, here I am. And, yeah. you know, it's amazing. My exposure to Tunisia, I didn't get to see any of those locations. I just spent my time in Tunis. And frankly, I didn't enjoy it that much. Although I did enjoy the beach. I didn't find the people super open to chatting. People seem to just want to mind their own business. And I found the stores, like the grocery stores, quite barren groceries seemed very sparse but i imagine because i visited recently just this last year towards the end of the year you might have visited when they hadn't been struck so hard with the economic downturn as well as their political happenings as you might say yeah yeah oh 100 i was there in october november most of december of 2015 so it was quite a while ago And also being on the island of Jerba, it's kind of like a little tourist area. You've got all your resorts on your beaches. So we had one of the conference centers got rented out and we had 30 of us in the conference. We all had our own little desks in the conference center. They brought in a big internet line for us. We worked out of the conference center. Right. But then we'd go out on our day run sometimes. Full buffet, just like going to an all-inclusive resort. It was Mm. whatever we wanted. And when it came to people, there's two people I remember. can't remember their names. I don't think I ever knew the one guy's name. But he was French, him and his wife. I would have been the age of his son, pretty much. And I don't know what happened. We were at the buffet one day and sitting, and he came over and just started talking French to me. And Tunisia, French is one of the main languages down there, right? I don't know any French. All the Europeans I was with, they're like, how do you not know French? You're from Canada. I'm like, yeah. So I embarrassed Canada Canadians there. I'm sorry. But yeah, so I didn't know any French. He starts talking to me and his wife comes over. She speaks a little bit of English and she said, he wants to go play, um, what is it, bocce ball or pickleball or something with you. 
And I'm like, it's just this old guy, like stranger. And I'm just like, well, this is weird, but okay. So I went and I played and they were there, I think two weeks, probably got together with them like four or five times. Anytime I walked into like where everyone was eating some of that, they would always wave and say hi. He wanted to go quadding one day. We went and took a bunch of the other people I was working with too. And we went out on like 15, 16 quads going through the desert together. And he's got pictures, like he's putting his arm around me, taking pictures with me. So I don't know if I reminded him of his son or a lawn. We like all hundred percent of our communication was just purely by hand signals trying to. And, and that's one thing I loved about traveling. That's amazing is yeah you can just do that and they friended me on facebook and still my birthday comes up and i will get this message that i have to copy and paste into google translate that says like hey happy birthday when are you coming back like because they do their trip every year down the jerba so the other person i met i thought i was about to get kidnapped i thought i was gonna die and it was about two and a half hours of me being really really nervous and then being extremely happy. But once a week from our resort there on Jerba, you'd go down to about a half hour taxi ride to a little town area where there was a market and there was a market sold a whole bunch of things with this guy made fresh orange juice that was like the best orange juice you've ever had in your life. I, I don't even know why or how it was just the best. So we'd go down there and anytime we'd be like walking into clearly we're not the typical demographic in the area and so on. So you'd start walking in there and you'd see this guy at this juice booth and he would go out into the area where people are sitting at tables and he would move people from tables and like push tables together. So that by the time we got there, you guys, you sit here, you say, I bring you your juice. Like it was just fantastic. And we'd pay him a lot for his, like, you know, he wants like a buck. We'd be paying like two, three bucks. Like, cause really it was just whatever, but, but super happy guy. And it was just, all he does every day is serve people fresh juice. And he was the happiest person in the world. That was amazing. Sorry, I got off track there. So <laughs> us going there every week for juice became a staple of our jobs out there. So we go to go out there one day and there's no taxis out front of the resort. And there's a guy with a horse carriage and he's like, no, I can't take you. And like, well, where are the taxis? Don't know. So we start walking a little bit because we'd walk a little bit. There's a traffic circle with a store and a couple other resorts. We get down there. We wave down a taxi and he stops. And we're like, well, we want to go to whatever the town was called. And, and he's like, no, no. And I was like, well, like we had our money in our hands and like, we'll pay you to take us. Or like, what? And I was like, oh, okay. So we get in the car. He drives us to the town. Now, this is like... 20-minute drive at 80, 90 kilometers an hour, so whatever that distance is. Yeah. We get there, and normally it's like turn left and like four or five blocks drop you off. He turns left, stops, and he's like, you guys get out here. He won't drive us to the center. Like, what the heck? And, you know, I'm in flip-flops and like no runners or anything like that, but like like whatever. So we walk the few blocks, we get into the market, and everything seems a little different. But at the other end of the market, there's like 200 cabs just parked there. So the juice guy sees us, he gets us our juice and everything, and he speaks a little bit of English. And he's like, what's going on? He's like, oh, today's taxi strike, no taxis. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. So now we're like, how are we going to get back? Like, it's probably a six-hour walk. So we tried, you know, bribing a couple taxi guys, like, meet us over there, like, give us a ride. Like, nope, nobody would take us. So we start walking. My foot was bleeding with my flip-flops, like, for probably three, four kilometers. Yeah. No. So we start walking, and this car stops, and um, Matias. So I am, I'm with uh, Matias, Uva, and Lupcho. So Lupcho's from Macedonia. Just looks like the kind of guy you don't want to piss off. Right. Matias 
Matthias is from Austria, and he looks like the kind of guy that would be walking down from the mountain with his sheep and everything. Like he is like six foot six. He is just like a massive man. But he is like scary looking. But once you start talking to him, he's the friendliest, biggest teddy bear. Like he's just awesome. I love this man. So you're with two burly men walking when your foot is bleeding. Yep. My foot's bleeding. And then there's Uwe from Germany, I believe he was from. And so we're walking along. This car is kind of going slow by and Matthias waves him down, kind of, you know, almost stands in front of the car. Like, you don't want to hit Matthias. It'll dent in your car. It won't hurt him. (laughs) And so the guy stops and then they talk for a little bit and and Matthias goes, okay, get in. He's going to give us a ride. And this isn't a taxi. This is just like some general guy out in his car. So we have been walking from uh, the west to the east to get out to our resort. We get into this car that was going west to east. We get in the car. First thing he does is does a U-turn and starts driving back towards town. What? Like, what the heck? What? I know. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And at that time I was there, we had three different alerts from Canadian Embassy. So when I travel, I always register myself with Canadian Embassy in case there's an issue. And I was really impressed by the Canadian Embassy because there was a couple bus bombs and stuff that happened in the area. And within minutes, like I, I get a text like, Three minutes ago, there was a bus bomb. Please shelter in place. Stand by for more information. And then 10 minutes later, everything looks like it's okay. It's targeted to this area. If you need any help, click this link for a phone number or whatever. I was really impressed with the Canadian consulate on that stuff. Yeah. So, but uh, we always have the warnings of there's always kidnappings. Never wanted them to know I'm Canadian. Like, you know, all the tourists that come down are one thing. A Canadian can be high value on, as a kidnapped person, different things and stuff with every, all that stuff going on there. Driving us back to see, I'm all nervous, and Matthias is just like, it's fine, don't worry about it. And I'm like, but no, we don't speak the language. Still driving us back. Drive us past the town, and then goes in the back area of the town, and drives around a few times. And as he's driving around, he's got the window down, and he's waving at people. And then he stops at this little coffee shop, and he goes in, and like, we're sitting in this car, and we're like, we're like packed in this car, like all these yeah. burly men in this like tiny little car. <laughs> and it's like 35 degrees. And we're packed, and I'm just like, if we get out now, we have to rewalk six kilometers. Like, what is going on? So he goes and sits down at the bar and has a coffee with a guy for about five minutes, and then you see some money changing hands. Then he comes back and gets in, starts driving again. I'm like, I am super nervous. I am extremely nervous. I'm the only one that's super nervous. Like, Macedonia, Austria, Germany, they're all like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's it's fine. I'm like, I am panicking. And I I don't know why, but I'm just panicking. So drives us around, he gets some petrol, and then he drives around, and then he pulls into this alley, and all the houses there, like alleys, it's just a row of cement walls with big gates, and I'm like, this is it, there's going to be a gate that opens up, he's going to turn in, there's going to be guys with machine guns, like, we're done. He pulls up to a gate, it starts opening, two kids come out that are maybe like five and seven, little boy and a little girl, and they wave at us. They're super happy, and they hand the driver, this this guy, some sunglasses and a CD. I'm like, okay, I'm not as nervous anymore. Like, the kids shouldn't be part of the army that's happening there or anything, so <laughs> not as nervous. He puts on his sunglasses, and then he grabs the CD, and he goes, Celine Dion for Canada, <laughs> and he puts it in, and he starts playing, and then he drives us all the way to the resort, playing Celine Dion, blasting out of the tiny little speaker. So what I learned later, because I wasn't learning anything at the time, I was just scared, and then I was like yeah. surprised, yet happy, and not sure, but what I learned later was that 
however much money Matias offered him, I guess was more than enough to cover like a month of his bills. Like to us, probably like an hour's worth of wages, but to him, him and his family are happy for a month. He drove us around showing off to everybody that, you know, oh, tourists, oh. you know, yeah. trusted him and were like, so he showed us off for a while. And then all he wanted to do, I don't know how he knew us from Canada, probably whatever voice or whatever, but all he wanted to do was play good music for us for that trip out there. So that really changed me as a person, not just in coming back and being like, I don't need so much to live, but it really opened me up to experiences that I spent so many years just staying shut. Well, this could go bad. This could go bad. Let's not do that. Let's. I turned into Uva, Lupcho, and Matias, and I basically started going out to things that happening in the world and going, well, whatever happens, happens. Let's enjoy it. Let's just have fun. And I'm like, that would have been a great experience for three hours. But instead, I was like scared. And at the end of it, it was like, wow, this was not anything like was running through my head and really changed my outlook on a lot of things. That's Fantastic. Actually, it sparks this idea in my head, and I want to break it down a little bit. The idea and the concept of in our world and in our industry, we always have the junior, intermediate, and senior. And I think we've talked a lot on senior and intermediate level. But let's say that somebody's just considering getting into this. Like they're totally new to this idea and this concept. And they're, they're maybe for the first time ever, they have a remote first job. And maybe they've been thinking about this digital nomad lifestyle. Maybe this is the first time they're even hearing the term right now on this podcast. And they're listening to this story and the impact that it's had on you as a person. And they're thinking, you know what? Maybe it's time I got out there and started collecting some of these stories for myself. I'm curious, do you have advice for them? Maybe help them get over the fence? Yeah. Oh, if I could do it all over again, knowing what I know now. I think my experience of landing at certain places could have been better with already knowing some people there or knowing some of those things. So all the years I spent in Bali, like every community, whether it was Kuda or Changu or Ubud or Iluatu or anything, they all had their own Facebook groups. The Iluatu Digital Nomads, Ubud Digital Nomads, find those Facebook groups or similar or Discord or whatever that's out there. But find those groups and join them. And if there's an admin question you got to ask, like, are you in the area or anything, type into that area. Like, I am planning on flying there in three weeks, and I want to start being part of the community so that I can see how I can bring value to the community. And then pop on there. And as you can start scrolling through, you're going to see a lot of the questions and the worries that you have, like when you're going to land in these places, they're already asked on there. It's like Stack Overflow. Oh, yeah. load up Stack Overflow and post your question. Oh, great Search analogy. first, right? Great analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So join these groups. If you're thinking of going to Bali, there's the bigger groups, the Bali Digital Nomads. Just join those groups and it's going, I'm coming over from Canada for the month of May. Does anyone have a suggestion on good airport transfer? So when I land, I know that I'm not going to get scammed by somebody that says, oh, it's $3 million to get you there when it's only 200000 or something because you just don't know. So ask those questions. And then what's going to happen when you ask those questions, you're not only going to get your answers, you're going to get people that say like, oh, oh, I'm also from Canada. Like I met people like, oh, I'm from Kelowna. I do WordPress development. Oh, I'm from Montreal. I I do iOS development. When you're here, shoot me a message. Let's grab a drink or something like that. So before you even get there, you can already start being a part of that community. But your best way into these communities is to post, hey, I'm coming over from Canada. Are there any Canadians that need something brought over to them? 
Because oh. some of us will be over like, oh, oh, I love that idea. I, yeah, I haven't had a container of cheese whiz, or I really miss true maple syrup, or oh, actually, my grandma. Like, I ended up going back once and. I brought some Christmas presents. So a lady I knew that had been in Bali a few years and her son was there and everything. She had some properties she dealt with. She wanted some Christmas things. So her family in Kelowna got the Christmas things, shipped them to me in Calgary. And I said, yeah, if it's no bigger than a shoebox, I have no problem. As long as I can open it, like don't make it wrapped because I, I, I'm the guy that I'm like, customs asked me, do you know everything in there? You, I, I want to look, I want to know, not be surprised that I'm accidentally bringing somebody's drugs or something, right? But just say like, is there, oh yeah, I'd love to have this and make some space in your luggage to bring those people something. And you're going to have a lifelong friend when you're in that location right there. That's a I great love tip that right there. Yeah. I, I absolutely love that tip. And I've experienced something similar. I'm actually wondering, have you tried the app couch surfing before Ryan? No, um, no about it, but um, the, what is the one for pet sitting? Well, there was house sitting there was a pet sitter one that I, yeah. I used a little bit. Yeah. So well, I never I was to, successful in it. But, yeah. <laughs> I had an amazing experience yeah. using that and I used it in a similar okay. capacity to the Facebook groups that you've described. But I've found hosts and I did this throughout my journey in India. I traveled through India for about three and a half weeks or something like that. I went from south to northeast from Chennai all the way to West Bengal to Kolkata. And I stayed wow. with different hosts that basically put me up for free. <laughs> I would say in exchange for sharing my cultural experiences with them for imparting my knowledge on them. And one situation I actually stayed with two sisters in a small village called Shantaniki Ketan. I don't think I ever said that correctly, but I kind of did, I think. <laughs> and I taught them how to write code. So they were interested in learning WordPress development. And I, at the time I was interested in that. So I taught them how to write code. And in exchange, I got to stay with them. And I still keep in touch with one of the sisters today, which is kind of a cool story. But you meet all kinds of people and you can arrange a place to stay and they give you all the tips of the local places to visit. I've done similar things with Airbnb hosts before, but it does sound like you get a lot out of reaching out to those groups as well to coordinate with other people that have a similar background to you. And that might strengthen your bond a little bit, knowing that you have somebody with a similar situation to you in the same place, the same foreign place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how many people that I've met while I was over there that would be new to it. Like, oh, I've been here three weeks. And I'm like, oh, have you done this? Are you try? No, no, no. I just kind of like, just, I haven't really talked to anyone. Yeah. And I'm just like, a lot of digital nomads are true introverts. Sometimes they don't feel like they're a part of something, so they just want to go and do things on their own. And that's great. But if you want the best experience while you're there, or what I feel is the best experience, you just got to step out of that comfort zone for a little bit, introduce yourself to someone and just tell them what you're having a challenge with. How did you solve this challenge? You know, something like that, because everyone's probably had it and there's always someone that'll be able to answer that for you. And I really feel that true digital nomads, not people that are just like, oh, I'm a digital nomad because I did this for two weeks, once every four years. But those true digital nomads, they've been through every issue and every problem. And if you ask them for some advice yeah. or some help, they'll give it because they got that help or advice from somebody along the way. So uh, you've mentioned using Facebook groups to, to reach out to other people in similar situations as you when you travel to a new country. What do you think about using tour guides, tour groups, hiring a private tour guide to show you around a place? Is, does that have a place when you work remotely or, or does it maybe 
come in more handy to reach out to people in your local vicinity, people of similar background to you and those Facebook groups to do the same thing. Yeah, hundred percent. I, uh, like when I land in Bali, I've got my scooter guy. I've got my guy yeah. that I know has a van and, and all those sorts of things. And, and he does tours and, and all that kind of stuff. I think if you land and, or you just reach out to someone to be a tour guide or something like that, you might not ever really know what you're getting. So you might get taken advantage of, but where these communities help is like, I need to land at the airport and I want a driver, but I also know that over the next week I want to tour to these three waterfalls or this. And some, somebody will go like, Oh, Wyan or Joko Bali transport. Like he works with everybody around, like, you know, tell him Susie from Kansas city sent you. And the minute you meet him, Joko is just like, Oh, I know Susie. Here's a, here's a picture. Like they love taking pictures. Here's a picture of me with Susie. And it's like your family instantly. But whatever he tells you, if he tells you, Oh, it's a mil, like 1.5 million for the day. And of course I'm talking Indonesia, 1.5 million for the day. And you know, you have, have me from 8am to 8pm, whatever you want, wherever you want to go. Just trust it. You know, if it's through a referral and it's through people in that community, you know that it's being made because people know this person. It's like that price is fair. It's trustworthy. You start dealing with people at the airport, like I want a tour or you just get in a regular taxi cab and they're like, we can do tours. Here's your card. And those prices are usually two times, three times easily more than what you can typically get it for. Right. So you can just use those groups and say, hey, look, I heard of this tour. Does anybody know of a tour group in the vicinity that can offer these yeah. services? And then you can go from there and have a more reputable guide. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you're traveling alone, a lot of times you can post in those groups and say, I'd like to do a tour of the waterfalls. Um, I'm, I'm landing there next week. Does anybody else haven't seen the waterfalls like want to join this tour or something? Cause you can rent a van with four or five seats and now you get to know people on a little more intimate level. Cause you'll spend a whole day with them rather than interacting with for a few minutes through a co-working space. Right. So for, for developers who already have a full-time job, I know that I did this. I, I packed my bags and I just went, I had a full-time job and I was working and I found it, I had a little bit different of an experience than you did, but I think every trip is different because you have different backgrounds, you have different places that you visit and that kind of thing. And, and actually, in my opinion, I think the people make the bigger difference than the actual location. But in your opinion, do you find that it helps to, um, to plan ahead a lot like like if you have a full-time job does it help to plan ahead more or can you just pack your bags say find you you know get that visa on arrival in bali like how easy is it to get started is what's preventing people from taking that step to experiment with uh working nomad lifestyle do you think yeah oh well if they have a full-time job um it's something they've got to talk to, I, I think, talk to their employer about. And, you know, like, I, I want to go over here. I want to spend a month here. But I also know that we have deliverables for our clients or whatever it is. Because there might be some contracts that, as an employee, you may not even realize or think about that some of these contracts may have clauses about information is only being stored or accessed in Canada or something. So the minute you're overseas, even if you're using a VPN, you're now actually violating that contract with the client and it could put your employer mm-hmm. in a nasty position that you don't even think about or realize. Or, and you know, it's, Oh, it's not my responsibility. So if you have a good employer, if they're not sure about letting you do this remote work, if you're working remotely from home right now and they're downtown Calgary or something, 
you've already proven on a certain level that you don't need to be in the office. Yeah. It doesn't matter what is behind me. I can get this work done. If your work requires showing up to certain meetings at certain times, if there's every Monday and Thursday, there's an 8 a.m. meeting and I don't care what time zone around the world you're in, you must show up for it. You have to have an employer that understands that you might actually miss one. Because as much as you plan and as much as you have your cell card and your SIM card and you got your backup glow local satellite connection and you have your two internet pipes at your co-working space, you pop on your scooter to leave your house to go to the co-working space and have your meeting in 15 minutes. And next thing you know, the road is washed out and you get stuck in a traffic jam and you're not going anywhere for 45 minutes. You might miss it. Rare that that happens, but it might happen. So you got to be prepared for those things maybe happening and know that you have an employer that's okay with that because you got, you're the kind of person that's going to make it up later. You know, like, yeah, sorry, I missed that meeting, but I watched the recording. Here's my input. You know, what can I do to add extra value and, and so on? And with me and my team and everyone being around the world, everyone's around the world, but they also travel a lot too. I got a guy that spends half time in Bali and half time in Thailand and he's from Germany and he's a high-end WordPress developer and he's fantastic at what he does and we give him tasks and we have give him due dates. There is no like you must be in this country or time zone or this or that. Here's your tasks, here's your due dates, deliver on time. If you can't deliver on time, post a message about why you need an extension so that we can understand, deliver to our client. And we've always communicated and had no issues and no problems. So it's a lot about time management, making sure you're not booked on a 16-hour flight from Singapore to San Francisco when you're supposed to be on a meeting because you're not going to have good Wi-Fi on that flight. Yeah. Have you played around with the points manipulation? Like there's the travel prints, the points guy, a bunch of other, there's a boarding area talk. There's a bunch of forums where they talk about, I don't know if you're familiar with any of that, right? Have you used your points at all to hack the, yep. hack the points to get like business class flights or anything like that? A little bit. I wouldn't call myself a hacker by any means on it. I think I probably could have benefited a lot more if I'd paid attention to a lot more of the videos and the TikToks I'd see and stuff. But there was a few times that, yeah, definitely move points from this Capital One Travel Aspire points card over yeah. to my IHG account. And then I could move the points from the IHG account over to my American Express Platinum account. And now all of a sudden I had enough points for business class or yeah. something. So I did that a couple times, but... It also got to a point where I was just like, I'm pretty lucky. We've got some good money coming in from our clients. Uh, if I'm flying on a long flight, paying for a business class flight is not a challenge for me. So if I want it, it's something I've been able to get. And the amount of time you go into hacking all the points and moving from platform to platform and everything like that, it's like, yeah, it saves 2000 bucks. But I'm like, that was just like an hour and a half of my time figuring out what to do. And then it was another hour of time getting it all done. And I know my time is not worth that much, but it's also like that's two and a half hours I could have spent with a family member or a friend. Like spending two and a half hours with Mike having some beers at Cold Garden <laughs> is more important to me than figuring out how to transfer points because I will get more out of that. I will get the friendship, everything out of that time that some of those things I just haven't dug into well myself. Thanks, Ryan. That was fun. <laughs> We're coming up on the two-hour mark here, and I am out of questions at the moment, but I think I'm going to have a whole bunch more pop up, I'm sure, and our listeners might have some more as well. Sean, you got anything left? 
Yeah, I have a lot of questions, but say if I work a full-time job or say I'm a solopreneur and I run my own web design agency and business or I can work remotely and it doesn't matter where I work from, what's the best place to go for me if I'm just looking to try out the working nomad lifestyle? Like, would you suggest Chiang Mai, Bali? Like, what's the best place to kind of get started in your opinion? Okay. I'm going to throw out two places just because they're where I spent the most time and they're on opposite sides of the world. So depending on where you are, what's the easiest for you to travel to visa wise or anything. Coworking Bansko in Bansko, Bulgaria, fantastic co-working co-live place again matthias and uva are the original founders of this place they set that all up and bansko bulgaria is about two and a half hours south of sofia massive european style city but you get into bansko and i spent a couple months there and it felt like i was in banff but 500 years ago it's a little ski town they have a mountain they got i think 19 ski runs or something like that it's cobblestone roads, like a couple of their main roads are more modernized and stuff. But once you get into the little town, you just walk up and down these cobblestone roads and the way the buildings are in Europe, the first level is almost two or three steps down. And then you're in that first level area. Like you'll go into restaurants, it's just a fire pit and a bunch of tables around it in there. They cook your food and get this massive plate of food for like four euros. And it's stunning. It's beautiful. I remember walking back. I had an Airbnb there for a couple months. I remember walking back. I had my AirPods in, listening to music, about a 20-minute walk from the co-working space, which is great internet, great team to support anything you need there, great community. And I walk around a corner, and I almost walk into the face of this bull. And this bull's <laughs> walking down the street. The, the guy behind him is just kind of guiding them down the street. And I'm like, of course, I didn't hear the cowbell on him because I got my AirPods in. But it was a great experience and beautiful little town, good community there. It's going to be a smaller community than the next place I'd recommend, and that is Bali. Bali is beautiful for so many different things. People travel to Bali that aren't digital nomads because it's beautiful. It's a great tourist location, but it's also a huge digital nomad location as well. And Outpost has always been 110% fantastic for me while I'm there. And you have the different outposts there. You can go into Ubud, into the jungle where it's about 45 minutes away from the beach, or you can go to the outpost that's in Chengdu and it's three minutes away from the beach. So both of those places, depending on where you are in the world, when you're listening to this right now and where you want to travel to, are both fantastic places to start out with and let people know that you're starting out. Like, hey, I've never done digital nomadism before. I wanted to try it out for a couple of weeks. What are your top three takeaways or something? What should I do while I'm here? And anything there, there's going to be someone that can help you. I have another question. You know, I've got a lot of equipment in my studio here. I have a big keyboard. I've got all these studio monitors. I have three monitors to do my work when I'm writing software. So I know for myself, when I traveled, I just had one screen. I just had my laptop. So what can you tell other aspiring developers who might want to try the working nomad style? What kind of assurance can you provide them about their setups that they can still be productive even with a smaller amount of the gear? Yeah. Oh, man. This jumps back into minimalism. One laptop, you can do it all for a year. And I did it. Yet the minute I land back in Canada, 
I'm instantly like, I need a 55 inch monitor to hook my laptop up to now. <laughs> like I just need it. Like yeah. sitting right in front of me here, I've got the Samsung Odyssey Arc 55 inch. Like it's the monitor that's is curved, but it also spins sideways. So when I'm testing apps, it's vertical for me. Like it's fantastic. But this thing's a hundred pounds. There's no way I can travel with this. And I feel I need it when I'm here. But I just got back. I've got a place down in Mesa, Arizona. I just got back from a week down there. I have my 14-inch MacBook Air. I took that down there. I sat on my couch or in my recliner and typed on my laptop the whole week and did all the work I need to do. I didn't need another screen. I could do it all. But with all that said, I'm a Mac-based world. Not sure what developers are using what these days in some of them, but... If you have an iPad, you instantly have two screens. So it's very easy to have your two monitors set up like that. But also if you're staying somewhere longer term, I did it in Chengdu uh, when I was at Outpost. Some of the places will rent monitors to you. It's like, oh, it's, you know, $3 or $5 a day and you can have a 27-inch monitor you can hook into. But also when I started staying there a little bit longer, especially when I set up my home office when we leased the house in Lotundu, I just went to an office supply store there like went into the main part of the city and went in and they have monitors and i bought i think it was a 32 inch monitor and i think it was equivalent of about 600 dollars. like that's the type of stuff that's not cheap you know that is that stuff is more expensive there but i'm like if i'm going to be sitting here every day for the next six months or eight months that is going to help me so i bought that and then when you don't need it anymore just give it away to somebody. Give it to a co-working space. Tell them, hey, here's something. When people can't afford to rent it out, please just give it to them for free. Or if you know like a couple local people that work for a dev shop in Bali or something like that, just gift them the monitor. Gift it to your house cleaner, anything. like. I remember I the first time I was in Bali, there was 13 of us. We rented this massive villa. It had seven bedrooms. We all shared rooms. And I shared a room with a friend of mine from here in Calgary. She traveled over there with us. And it was like, okay, well, we're not sharing a bed. Like, we're friends. I'm going to buy a mattress, put my mattress on the floor. So I bought a mattress, I think, for about 150 bucks. put it on the floor, got full bedding for it, worked out perfectly. We were there six weeks before we went up to Ubud for the last two weeks. When we were done, our house cleaner that had come by every day, and that was part of our rental agreement with them, I just told her, I want you to have the mattress. She sat down on the floor, like hugging my legs and cried for like three minutes. So happy to have this mattress. And like, again, there's so many things that we take for granted that when you can get them over there and then you just give them away to somebody, this is a queen size. I have a bad back. I've had three back surgeries. So I didn't buy a cheap mattress to go, but 150 was a cheap mattress, but over there it was the expensive brand but it's a great mattress queen size like you see how some people live in that country and it's just like wow it looks close to homelessness of what we would compare to here yet it's their family home and it's beautiful for them and they're just fine with it it really puts a lot of things in perspective so if you're over there and you're a developer and you're like i need my external monitor if you're working from your own home like you rented airbnb it's got good wi-fi you can get an external monitor you got to be careful of what you let people see you bringing into the home because you do want to be careful of potential theft because a lot of it is not as secure as it looks. And if you get your own monitor and want to put it up in a co-working space, you can do that, but you'll usually have to pay a little bit more to have, oh, out of all the desks, like this is going to be a dedicated one for me for the next couple months or so. But yeah, just be open to sharing. And when you're done with it, 
don't try and figure out how to put it in your suitcase on the way home. Or if you can sell it to another digital nomad, if it's like, yeah, I'll give you, you know, we bought 700, I'll give you 200 bucks for it. Yeah, so be it. But if you're able to, if you can handle the loss of the finance and the asset to just give it away to someone who could really use it, it'll go so far in karma for you. So that's amazing. And I've experienced this too as well. I once stayed with a host in India, in central India, in a small town called Bilaspur. And I remember walking, I just, I went up to the top. They had agreed to host me, but I finally saw the sleeping quarters. It looked like, to me, and this is my opinion, it looked like a warehouse. It was like, there were no beds and they just took these like pieces of straw, these basically straw carpets laid them out on the floor and, and they slept there they had like a tv from like the 30s or something like the, the place they saw my expression they said look we'll put you up in a hotel they had barely had any money so I said, no 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 no. i'm gonna stay i'll pay for myself like i'm good but i went up to the top of that little area and it looked like a scene from uh, a slumdog millionaire <laughs> like it just looked it, it it had that feeling to me and i, I just i remember i have so much in my life like i am so lucky to even have a bed to sleep on and they were so nice after they took me on a safari. And, you know, it just brings me to the point that every day when you travel or work as a working nomad, every day is a new day. And I say this, the more and more I do it, the more I realize that, especially if you go out of your comfort zone to experience new things, every day you experience something new. And so you feel at the end of a trip that you've lived like months and months when really you've just maybe a few weeks it's because you've compressed all of those activities into a smaller amount of time. So my question for you is how long is enough to really get a taste of this lifestyle? Is it two months like you did in Bali or how long is enough to really figure out if this lifestyle is for you? If you're you know, a software developer looking to try this lifestyle out? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, my first initial thought when you're asking me that question is I want to say two months. One month is it's one month. By the time you get used to the place, it's now time for you to go. You haven't really experienced a lot of things. If you have experienced a lot of things, you haven't been working very much while you're there either. So like if you truly want to be a digital nomad, you've got to work. You know, you're six hours or so per day, five days a week. So if you're fitting all that in, you're really only getting weekends. So two months at a very minimum in one spot. I think is going to tell you if this is the lifestyle for you. And then if you can continue it, or if you get to another chance to go at it, try and go a full six months or try and go whatever is going to best handle however you want to do it. Because sometimes if you leave Canada for too long, it could affect depending on the province you're from, could affect your healthcare when you come back and all these different. So you got to look into all these things if you're going to do it a little bit longer term. And there's hundreds of those scenarios. So I, I can't even begin of where to start for each person. But two months will give you a taste. I think one month would give you a taste. Two months will really give you the answer. And again, you have to stay in the same spot for that two months. Like when I went to Bali and spent four months in Canggu and in Uluwatu the first time, and then, uh, or sorry, four weeks in uh, Uluwatu and then four weeks in Ubud, fell in love with Bali as an idea. But I also had two completely different experiences. And I was also there with a lot of people that I had already spent three months with in Africa. So it was easy. A lot of things were very easy. But if you can go on your own, or if you're traveling with a partner or something like that, if you can go as that couple and just take two months, find a place and just deal with whatever happens over those two months, and you're not super homesick or just sick of it, because there'll be time, even when I spent months and months there, there's times it'd be like, oh, it'd just be so easy to be at home right now. But 
you know, I'd just hop on my scooter, drive into the main city part and go to McDonald's and get a hamburger and be like, okay, there's my taste of home. Let's get back to what reality is here now and, and enjoy it. Absolutely. That, that, that really makes it more approachable. I really appreciate you going through to take the time with us and tell us about your experiences working uh, remotely on in different parts of the world, Ryan. Um, now, you said you run a marketing agency, right? Uh, maybe tell us a bit about where people can find you online and how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Yeah. So I run SaaS headquarters. So we're a software development and digital marketing agency. So we help you with everything from strategy as a solution to then software as a solution. And then we service anything as a solution after that. So SaaS headquarters is at sashq.com and always happy to chat digital nomadism or remote work life or anything like that with anybody. They can email me just directly at Ryan at sashq.com and feel free to throw that in the show notes as well if you like absolutely we'll put a note in the show notes well ryan before we hand it off before we uh, end this podcast do you have any questions for us oh why don't you talk more mike i uh i'm i'm here learning and uh and i have learned a lot in this episode let me tell you it was just really great and you know yeah it's always good to chat with you, my friend. It's always good. No. Yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I want to thank you guys again for setting aside the time to talk about the experiences I've had because everyone's experiences will always be different. But knowing and hearing the stories that some people have gone through, I really hope a lot of our listeners that are thinking about it just figure out how to do it and get it done. And I hope that I'm sitting over in Bali and somebody talks about, I listened to this podcast three years ago and whatever happened. And now we're here having a drink together, a coconut, which hopefully not with a bamboo straw. So I knock another tooth off. <laughs> no, so, more vicious, but, uh, no more vicious straws. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, like, again, thank you guys. I listened to a few of the episodes that you guys have had after Mike asked me to be a guest on here and listen to those. And I love the interviews you've done with people and I'm honored to be one of your guests on here. So thank you for that. Thank you. Right. That was fantastic. Yeah, it's really great to have you on. And uh, if we ever have any other guests on for remote work, we'll maybe put you head to head with them and you can we can all share travel stories. That's, yeah. that's something I would love to do as well. So, okay. 100%. And okay. If, I, I will throw in here, if, if you're looking for guests, I know we talked about him earlier, but Thomas that's running that Reconnect Island Resort. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. It, he, he, a great idea. He loves – he's a fantastic man. He is an entrepreneur from Europe, from France, and he actually popped on his bicycle. I might not have 100% of the facts right, but uh, you, you can get this from him. But popped on his bicycle, rode around Europe for a little bit, and he just stopped at places and interviewed CEOs about how they built their business. Then he took his bike over to America, what started in Miami, rode his bike all the way from Miami up to Toronto, Canada, and talked to, I think it was just over 100 CEOs about challenges and stuff building their business. And then he built up a big e-commerce sort of thing, moved over to Bali, set up co-work, co-live places. And then now he's got this beautiful eco resort on this tiny little island. So he'd be a great guest for you guys. Yeah. I wonder if there's like a way for a discount for you to get a referral. <laughs> we'll, we'll try to reach out to him and see yeah. if we can get him on. That would be really cool as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, if I can help facilitate that introduction at any time, let me know. I know him and his wife just had their first baby, I think two months ago or something like that. So probably pretty busy with life. But mm-hmm. uh, but if it's a shorter interview or something like that, I'm sure he'd be happy to chat a little bit about his journey because it's amazing. Cool. Right on. Awesome. Yeah. You're welcome, guys. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Hey folks, Mike here with the show notes. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Ryan Hanetka for all the cool stories and great advice. If you would like to connect with Ryan, you're invited to email him at ryan at sashq.com. That's ryan at sashq.com. Or connect with him on LinkedIn. You can find him at linkedin.com slash in slash Ryan Hanetka. That's R-Y-A-N-H-N-E-T-K-A. You'll be happy to know that this episode was sponsored by Sean's Time and Skills. I would like to thank Sean immensely for crafting this entire episode all on his own. This isn't to say that we wouldn't love to team up with a sponsor. We just haven't had that opportunity yet. Sean and I got into this because we love technology and we care about developers. We know how hard this career can be and we wanted to do whatever we could to help you navigate your whole career or just cope with a single uncooperative confusing line of code. If you found this or any other episode helpful, please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your podcasting platform of choice. If you have any questions and would like to get in touch with us, you can join us on our Discord. You'll find us at bit.ly slash web dash perspectives. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash web dash perspectives. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show.